Welcome back to another episode of Laser Graves. I am your co-host, E.K. Wimmer. Hello, Elgar Knife. I am Mariah Rose. <laughs> Hi. How are you doing over there? I'm doing great. How are you? Pretty good. It's been pretty cold, but it also helps make it feel like the holiday season. And mm-hmm. we're moments away from, from Christmas, so I hope everybody is done their shopping and is ready to hang out. Uh, we can't be around any family, so mm-hmm. it's a weird one this year, but we're making the most of it. And also, if you don't celebrate Christmas, then just enjoy your time off. That's right. If, <laughs> if you get time off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. But no I matter don't. what, we're very close to the end of this monumental year. Yeah, this crap shoot of a year is almost over. Oh my gosh, do you remember at the end of 2019 when everybody was like, "Woo, we made it. We're yeah. going 2020 is going to be great." <laughs> like, Haha. Yeah. That's funny to think about. Well, also speaking of going into the new year, we have a big announcement that we're going to save for the end of the episode. So you have to actually listen to the whole episode this time. And With your ears. At the very end, we're going to announce some some cool information about the, the coming year of Laser Graves and some directions we're headed. So stay tuned for that at the end of this one. Mm-hmm. But before we launch into our... Our holiday episode, I guess you could say in a way, kind of. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> Our version of a holiday episode. Our 2020 version of a holiday episode. Did you manage to get any thrift finds this week? Yes, I did. I went to a couple thrift stores. Uh, the most exciting thing I found was weird. It was two milk glass fish plates, which try and say that three times fast. Okay. I don't think it's possible. Anyway, so they're like little, I don't know, white fish i'm not sure if i'm gonna keep them or put them on my etsy shop but okay they're pretty cool that's cool what about you my find. well i did find a couple things but the, the thing that i wanted to mention was actually your find technically because you oh, yeah. handed them to me and then i was like what and bought them i always feel so super cool when i find something that you didn't because your <laughs> eagle eyes especially on media so yeah yeah no you found two books of the story Perfect Blue, the mm-hmm. Japanese story, which was later adapted a few years after the book was made into the Japanese animation film Perfect Blue, which is one of our favorites. So mm-hmm. I've never read the novel that it was based on, and it was very exciting to get it. What year, do you know what year Perfect Blue came out? Uh, 91 would have been the book, and then 97 was the movie. Ooh, we should do that on our time travel, time episode, travel episode for Patreon. Yeah, if you're not... A uh, member of Patreon yet? Get on there. We're doing all kinds. Oh, speaking of which, in mm-hmm. just a couple days we'll have our holiday episode of Patreon. Yes. That's one you definitely don't want to miss. There's already loads of content up there to get you through several hours. That's right. You get all the back stuff. But yeah, that was my find this week. Was your find, and I'm claiming it. Very okay. good. I'm thrilled to have it. I didn't even know there was a sequel, and that's what, or you know, a, a second book, uh-huh. and you found them both. So. Just right there, and they're in great condition, too. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, good good finds this week. Yeah. Okay, so we toyed with a bunch of different ideas for our holiday episode. Yeah, everything from ignoring the holiday to... <laughs> to doing, like, full-fledged Christmas, only to find that almost everything we had planned already got done by a billion other uh, podcasts. So we decided, you know what, let's do our own thing. We both thought it would be fun to look at a specific Christmas episode of a TV show. But then that led us to think, wait a minute, why don't we just do more of like a history of episode anyway? Mm -hmm. So this week, very nostalgic for a lot of people, we are going to be discussing the hit TV show, Tales from the Crypt. Oh, yeah. My earliest memories of Tales from the Crypt are not actually watching it. 
I, I've talked about it here on the podcast before, but when we moved, my family moved to Harlowton, a very small town in Montana. Mm-hmm. My dad got hooked up with free cable from the local TV station. <laughs> now, scandalous. <laughs> now, let's just put this in uh, into a real picture. Their TV station was in a small bedroom in the bottom of their house, like in the basement of their house. It was just a nice family who went to the church and they were just nice to my parents. I would expect no less from a small town. In- yeah. Montana. Yeah, it was really sweet. But we started getting the little mailers and I was never allowed to watch Tales from the Crypt. But I could look over that uh, little square booklet that they sent and I would read the synopsis of what was coming out on (laughs) Tales from the Crypt and wish and wait. So I don't think I saw it till maybe high school when it came out on TV. I think your eyes would have been... Uh, wide open had you have watched an episode on HBO because I oh, think yeah. for many listeners I don't know if a lot of them got to see the HBO version originally but it's dramatically different from what you saw in reruns yeah. on normal television so that's pretty funny yeah because at that time you had to pay extra for HBO in, in a way that was pretty significant I think yeah if you wanted to see the nudity you had to pay for it <laughs> Yeah, so did you see it in syndication for the first time? Yeah, I saw it when it was in reruns. We didn't have cable growing up, so it would have been, you know, whatever channel we had it on. Well, yeah, you lived in like a dirt hut out in the middle of the desert. Yeah, I forged for my food every night, (laughs) ran around in loincloth screaming. (laughs) Rattlesnake belt, live rattlesnake. rattlesnake (laughs) strap around my chest. (laughs) No, I remember, I loved it. And why we're discussing it is that it did get its start in 1989. This is a legit 80s TV series that got its start, but then I don't think anybody predicted that it would take off the way it did. And really, the 90s is the heyday of Tales from the Crypt. So people our age who were teenagers when this was coming out was prime audience for this. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of us just have a lot of nostalgia for Tales from the Crypt. Yes. And it became a powerhouse in the 90s. But we're going to take a look at the entire history of Tales from the Crypt. In this episode, although we'll be looking at a very fun holiday episode. Yeah, because we're keeping it on theme. We're still going to do more of a history of. So this will this will be a fun one. Yeah, well, you know, I just finished grading a bunch of student papers, and I'm really in the mood to get scholarly, so I thought oh, we should cover <laughs> Tales from the Crypt. You got your turtleneck and your, your bubble pipe. Yep, I just finished playing bongos, too. It was weird. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, lay some <laughs> info on me. Yeah, so it's an episodic series. It started in June of 1989. And it ran through July of 1996. The series aired a total of 93 episodes, which I find troublesome. Why did they not do seven more? Just get to an even 100. (sighs) They take the name from a 1950s comic series, which I think you'll get to in a bit here. The show paired real campy nostalgia, but elevated, maybe? It with HBO level nudity, oh yeah, profanity, mm-hmm. sex, and America's favorite, extreme violence. Extreme violence. You can't have nudity in syndication, but boy, can you keep the violence in. Oh yeah, no problems there. <laughs> That's America. Although the series was eventually aired and syndicated, as we said, uh, you're probably most familiar with these edited versions because it was just so much more readily available. Every episode has variations or on a similar beginning in which we follow a tracking shot through the door of the Crypt Keeper's home. There's a long shot through the house, which ends inside the Crypt Keeper's house in the basement. Uh, I guess every episode is in the basement. As I was reading up on it, I, di- I didn't realize that they always go down to the crypt of his mansion. <laughs> yeah. I, I, for some reason, thought they always ended up in different rooms. <laughs> well, because it's like such a chaotic entry shot. Mm-hmm. And it's always set up differently. So I was like, oh, we're in a different room. He's always got different costumes on. Yeah, absolutely. But no, he's just in his crypt. And it starts with him, the crypt keeper, laughing maniacally. And then the show titles appear in like slime. And we should probably talk a little bit about the crypt keeper up front. We'll discuss him pretty much throughout this whole episode. But before we get into more detail, in a general sense, the crypt keeper is a corpse. He makes jokes and most importantly, puns. Oh, yeah. Before introducing each episode. So he's like the bookends of a an episodic story. He ties each episode together. It's a classic anthology trope mm-hmm. is that you have a way to tie in each episode yes. through a host. Because each episode is a standalone story. Right. 
It has an intro and a conclusion given by the Crypt Keeper, but the body of the story is unique with different actors every single time. The episodes include some pretty rad comic book style art, which was done by Mike Vosberg and Sean McManus. What I really want to know, though, is how this got to be made. Before we even get into the TV series, like you said, it's got this rich history. It started with a comic book. Mm -hmm. And that was my first introduction, really, long before the TV series was. As a kid, I did read comics like most kids. Mm -hmm. And I did come across some Tales from the Crypt reissues. So I really liked them. I thought they were cool. I always loved spooky stories. I was familiar with the the notion of Tales from the Crypt from those comic books, the way they laid them out in these mini stories, because that's how the comics mm-hmm. are. It's interesting that you say that because I didn't hear or know anything about the comics until I was already well familiar with the series. And I thought they had created the comics from the series, not oh. vice versa. Oh, interesting. Well, the comics were actually the product of Max Gaines, he was an unlikable character. He wasn't a very good father. Uh, just a rough rough guy to be around, but a powerhouse when it came to being a shrewd businessman. <laughs> nice. And he was early, early on. Some people said, you know, he kind of introduced comics into the world, but I'm not going to give him that much credit because I don't know that history that much. And I don't need all the comic book nerds right now being like, eh, actually. <laughs> so we'll just say he created EC Comics, which was then called Educational Comics, but it got changed later. And he ran a successful business, but in 1944, he died in a boating accident. So his son, William Gaines, had to take over this franchise of comic books. Not only did he not want to, he was very reluctant because he had a rough relationship with his father, who Mm -hmm. said he would amount to nothing, and also just called him a klutz constantly. Jeez, Dad, calm down. But also, his dad was handing over a crapshoot of an empire that was already going downhill because the switch, he, he had a successful comic business and then decided to switch over to educational comics, which were of no interest to anybody. Oh, so I'm bored just thinking about educational exactly. comics. Exactly. So the sales were already like going downhill fast. So this is what he inherited. Uh, a failing comic franchise from a father he didn't even get along with. <laughs> but he did it. So William Gaines looked at what he was dealing with. And got the bright idea one day. He partnered with a guy named Al Feldstein, who was a writer and an artist. Mm -hmm. And they were big fans of a radio show, a radio horror show called Lights Out. Cool. And they thought, man, what if we did this in comic book format? This was revolutionary because this had never been done before. And this was the starting point of what we would later get to with Tales from the Crypt, is the two of them worked together So William had taken over EC. He changed it right away from educational comics to entertaining comics so that it could be way more broad Mm -hmm. and they could do other stuff. And they started cooking up these ideas of short horror stories. By 1950, they had launched several horror comics and it was immediately successful because people loved them. They were gory. They were creepy. Mm -hmm. And nobody had ever really seen anything like that. Oh, yeah, everybody loves something spooky scary. (laughs) Right. And one of the major ones was called Crypt of Terror, which after just a couple issues became one of their top sellers, and they switched it to Tales from the Crypt. Oh, okay. So this is what solidified that. How it worked was Gaines and Feldstein would like come up with all these concepts together, and then Feldstein would take it and start writing the story, illustrating, and that's what, what came to be the format What's interesting is they were doing essentially a story a day to keep up with this kind of process. Well, maybe that would be the coolest job ever. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. They included a ton of other writers, artists. This is very important to note for the TV show down the road is it was all about collaboration, bringing in other voices. Yes. Other ideas. And it immediately established this good versus evil with an ironic twist where, you know, they always got what they deserved in the end. So this was present right away in the comics. The other important thing is that there were three hosts throughout each Mm -hmm. comic. There was the Crypt Keeper, the Vault Keeper, and an Old Witch. And all of them offered comic relief to the very gruesome content of the comics. Were they punny? Yeah. Yeah, the Crypt Keeper was punny. Like the TV series? Yeah, absolutely. So it was just a very playful dynamic of you got this comic relief and then you got this really creepy, gruesome story. Mm Mm-hmm. And the stories did get very gruesome in this oh. comic series. Yeah, they were, I mean, rough around the edges for sure, which a lot of up-and-coming young kids who liked the darker side of things, this was 
man, they couldn't get enough of it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it's human nature, too, to, like, really like that scary, creepy, gruesome stuff. It's just, like, a, I think every one of us has that in us, that interest, that curiosity. So it's perfect to play upon our nature and, and build an empire out of it. Yeah, especially those of us who are drawn to horror movies and stuff like that. And, you know, All the gothic, goth babies. This will be our type of, of comic that we would have picked up. It became so popular that they actually branched out and started doing other things like weird science, weird fantasy. So it was now like sci-fi and just strange tales, all that kind of cool stuff. Mm -hmm. Not the comic book, strange tales, but strange stories. Yes. And this was in full force. A funny note during this time is that because they were trying to get stories so quick, one of the stories that Gaines came up with was actually just ripping off a couple short stories from Ray Bradbury. Oh. <laughs> and Ray Bradbury found out. One day sent him a very polite letter saying, Hey, I saw you used my stories. You failed to pay me royalties. Oh, and snap. William Gaines, being the very kind of smart, quick thinker, spun it really quick and said, Oh, yeah, yeah, we just didn't have your, your address. We meant to send you the royalty <laughs> checks. By the way... Would you like to come write for us and adapt some of your short stories into Tales from the Crypt stories? And he was like, sure. So Ray Bradbury actually ended up writing a couple stories Whoa, for Tales from the Crypt. that's cool. Yeah, I thought that was kind of funny. Everything was going great. They had so many different issues of all these weird sci-fi horror stories. They had really just cornered the market and were mm -hmm. making a killing. But with any great success, you're going to get your critics. And already there was starting to become this backlash with corruption and parents being worried. Oh, in the 1950s? Yeah. <laughs> there started to become these kind of very, uh, kind of indicative of, of Nazi era book burnings where they would have these public burnings of the comics. They were starting <laughs> to get really PTA meetings, all that kind of stuff. There was this one psychologist that was really way reading into it way too much. And it made such a stir that by 1954, there was a Senate subcommittee that was created to look into these allegations of juvenile delinquency. And <laughs> they were brought forward with that. And so William Gaines had to go to the Senate and testify in defense of his comics Whoa. that they weren't contributing to ju juvenile delinquency. <laughs> the problem is that he was a hothead. He was somebody who was stubborn and he did not believe any of this made any sense whatsoever. Yeah. He did not do himself any favors no. by testifying and dug his grave even deeper. What are we afraid of? Are we afraid of our own children? Do we forget that they are citizens too and entitled to the essential freedom to read? Or do we think our children so evil, so vicious, so simple-minded that it takes but a comic magazine story of murder to set them to murder, of robbery to set them to robbery? In the 1950s, they were not having it, and it... It just was the end of it right then and there. Oh, geez. So horror comics, as we know it, just basically came to a standstill. I think I read somewhere that like over a dozen companies that were producing horror comics at this time, including theirs, went out of business overnight because of this decision. Was there like a law passed? Or? Wasn't a law. What happened is that there was this group that came together of, of other comics who agreed to adhere to rules saying there's a certification now that there can't be violence, there can't be blood. Oh, good grief. And, and then all of a sudden, comics from there on out, and you'll notice this from the, from the 50s on, there's like a little stamp in the corner that says it's certified by this board, and they oversaw it. It reminds me of, uh, what is it, Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons. That yeah. same idea where you just get all crazy for no good reason. Yeah, it's like the, the mother's group that came up and, and got all yeah. in a huff up in during the satanic panic. It's the exact same idea. And of course, William Gaines was completely stubborn and said, well, I refuse to join this organization sure. and, and adhere to this. And it just went downhill from there. So that was really the, the definitive end to Tales from the Crypt. It only lasted about four years, mm -hmm. but it made a huge impact on a lot of people. Yeah. And it wasn't like it was the end for him. Luckily... The, you know, the ace up his sleeve was he also ran Mad Magazine, which oh. went on to become an <laughs> empire. So whatever. <laughs> I was feeling bad for him. He's fine. Yeah, he did just fine. <laughs> as far as Tales from the Crypt after the comic, uh -huh. it really only popped up, you know, 1972. There was that really famous movie adaptation, which was an anthology of five stories. Mm -hmm. 
one of the stories that was adapted, we will definitely be talking about later, that was taken right from the comics. And then the big story for us getting into the TV show is that the EC Comics of Tales from the Crypt got a republication in the late 70s. A company put out all of them in bound copies. And up until that point, if you didn't keep your your issues, there was no way to read these. So all these kids who grew up in the 50s loving these are now by the late 70s, early 80s filmmakers oh, and they're all and young adults they're all young adults they're writers and they're very excited to get these again and that got the the ball rolling for oh yeah we forgot about tales from the crypt yeah that's cool there are two directors in particular that are definitely worth mentioning oh yeah yeah one of them is obviously george romero in an interview he had said that he even not only was a huge fan of tales from the crypt but when he did night of the living dead a lot of the shots he tried to frame and light to look like comic. Oh, yeah, yeah, I see that. And then, interestingly with him, he had approached Stephen King in the 80s with this idea of doing kind of a throwback to Tales from the Crypt in an uh, an anthology. Uh And then King came back and was like, yeah, I got a name for it and everything. And that became Creepshow, which is the awesome film, which is a complete just throwback to it intentionally. So that's why it has all these kind of animated sequences. And also that was, they they tapped one of the original illustrators from Tales of the Crypt to do all of those. Oh, really? Yeah, I think it was a really effective way of just paying, you know, an homage and love to the early comics. Mm-hmm. So that's worth noting. And then the other big one was in an interview, and this comes as no surprise, John Carpenter also was right. a massive fan. And he said that especially in The Fog is where he's paying his biggest love for Tales from the Crypt because it's about these ghouls kind of coming back because mm. they need to reclaim what's theirs yeah. and stuff like that. The way he lit it, the way he he created the characters was to try and kind of call back to the early illustrations of cool. Tales from the Crypt. And then non-director, but still in, in pop culture, another huge fan that also got his ideas to start his own career was R.L. Stein, and R.L. Stein was the same idea. His thing was he loved how they mixed horror with comedy. Okay. And that's why he, when he wrote his children's books and Goosebumps and all that, mm-hmm. always tried to mix the scary with a little bit of comic relief. Yeah. Because he liked that from reading Tales from the Crypt. Oh, so cool. that's just scratching the surface, but needless to say, it really did have a profound impact on a whole wave of people who were creating by the 70s and 80s. But one of the, the main ones is Joel Silver, who was a mm-hmm. producer. You'll know him from all kinds of things. He produced, you know, The Warriors, 48 Hours, Weird Science, Lethal Weapon, Die Hard, Predator, all that stuff. Calm he down. was a huge fan of Tales from the Crypt. So he started talking around town with some other people, like Walter Hill, who you'll also know, the director of The Warriors, 48 Hours, uh, <laughs> Bullet to the Head with Stallone. <laughs> Anybody got any bullet? <laughs> I love that movie. I don't. They all started talking. There was a third guy named David Geiler who had produced Alien and directed The Money Pit, one of your favorites. Mm -hmm. The three of them got together and pitched the idea to William Gaines to get the rights to adapt Tales from the Crypt because they were all fans. They wanted to do a movie. William Gaines agreed, but then they started thinking like, wait a minute, would this be cooler as a television show? Mm Mm-hmm. Then they got two other powerhouses at the time to sign on, also huge fans of the comics as kids. Richard Donner, the director of The Omen, Superman, Lethal Weapon, also our favorite, The Goonies. And then another name you may have known, Robert Zemeckis, who did Back to the Future, Roger Rabbit, Death Becomes Her, Force Gump, all those. So you get this group of all these dudes together who were huge fans of the original comics and they decided they're going to start a TV show. It's perfect, too, because they're kind of mid-level. Like, they'd had some success, but they weren't huge names yet. Like, mm-hmm. they weren't household names. They didn't have that whole laundry list that you read off completed. They were just right in the midst of it. They were doing good. You know, things like Back to the Future had yeah. come out and the Goonies and stuff. But these guys, they were ready to open some doors and make this happen. Yeah. So it is really interesting when you think about the talent that was involved with this TV show is... Yeah. There's a reason why this was successful. Yeah, it's huge. It's like, you know, in last week's episode, we talked about how how many different people, d- different organizations, groups of people, individuals 
had a hand in just gem. Yeah. This blows that out of the water. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is like a powerhouse. And Huge each production. episode is like that, which is pretty crazy. But those were the characters that got the ball rolling. And like you said, it started June 10th, 1989 is when it officially launched. And it was an immediate success. Yeah. Very exciting time. Yeah. And the series, obviously, with 93 episodes, it had so many writers. If you look it up, there are more than 70 writers credited with contributing to the series over its runtime. Yeah, that's no surprise. The main co-writer, co-creator was Stephen Dodd. Okay. And he was really the overarching writer that kept uh, continuity through the series and was also focused on staying true to the original comics. That's an important note because why people were fans of this too, that grew up on the comics and then loved the TV series is they recognized the stories because they Mm -hmm. weren't just new stories being created in the style of, they were adapted stories from the actual comics, not only Tales from the Crypt, but some of the other horror-themed comics that William had been putting out during his time with EC. All 93 episodes, except for the very last one, were adapted from comics. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't yeah, know Yeah, yeah. So they were very careful about that. In addition to all of the writers, obviously I'm not going to list them. <laughs> they also had uh, uh, the same amount of directors. Right. I mean, some people would direct several episodes, but overall they had loads of directors. They also had a freakish amount of basically A-list actors mm-hmm. or B-list, whatever. But so many big names were involved with the series. I'm going to drop a few of the big names here, but by no means is this even a scratching the surface of the list. If you want to go look it up, you can. It's bonkers. So we have people like Demi Moore, Kyle MacLachlan, Patricia Arquette, Michael Ironside. Oh, hey. Catherine O'Hara, Ewan McGregor, Brad Pitt. Wait, these all acted or directed? Acted. Some of them acted and directed. Okay, yeah, because this was something that became notorious for getting in on. Like, I feel like it was a badge of honor if you got to be in an episode of Tales from the Crypt. Also, I've developed a theory. Let me read a few more names from this (laughs) list. Okay, keep going. Isabella Rossellini, Mm -hmm. Sherilyn Fenn, Joan Chen... Billy Zane. Okay, I get where you're going. Are you seeing a David Lynch leak? <laughs> I've definitely seen a Twin Peaks connection. Uh, well, but we also have like Patricia Arquette. I mean, yeah, and Isabella Rossellini. Yeah, we also have uh, musicians like Adam Ant, Heavy D, Iggy Pop, Vanity. <laughs> yeah. And then I can't. That's awesome. I, I would be doing us a disservice if I didn't mention that Tim Curry is also in an episode. Of course, man. What a fun time. If I was an actor at that time, which I never would be. It would have been a blast to be on an episode of Tales from the Crypt. Honestly, I think that basically every actor who was alive at this point in time was on this series. Yeah. It probably paid well, too. I'd have to imagine that it, yeah. they were doing so well. This was a good gig. Like I said, several of the actors, like uh, Tom Hanks directed an episode, Kyle MacLachlan did. We also have Richard Donner and Robert Zemeckis. Both of them directed three episodes each. Yeah, Walter Hill did the leadoff one, too. I think. Yeah, he did three episodes That's as well. That's such a well. great one, too. Mm-hmm. Kevin Yeager, who I'll talk about a little bit later. There's just so many big names uh, that are directors, actors. Just it's all over the board. It's a creative powerhouse. So you can see that there were probably a lot of connections being made at this time between actors, writers, directors. And there is a lot of crossover where you see that they go on to work projects together later Mm -hmm. or they had already worked together in the past. Yeah, this got a reputation, too, of being an area where, like somebody like Tom Hanks, if you wanted to try directing, they would give you an episode and and see what happened. So this was a a safe zone kind of to say, this show's going to be a hit regardless. So go ahead and give a shot at directing it. Yeah. And I think that's really exciting. Toby Hooper directed an episode too. Okay. Well, he wasn't cutting his teeth by that point. Well, Arnold (laughs) Schwarzenegger was. (laughs) (laughs) That's really cool. Yeah. You know, the same thing happened with the music of this TV series. It was just as diverse and crazy. The main theme should be noted. An awesome main theme by Danny Elfman, which... Of course. If you need a great main theme, bring in Danny Elfman. Especially a little creepy. Yeah, a little kooky uh, band. That, he knocked that out of the park. But the two main composers were Jay Ferguson and Nicholas Pike. They did a bulk of it, but mm-hmm. there were 48 composers that Whoa. were involved in this. Almost every episode, apart from those two, would be a different composer. Many of them only had like one credit, so they only did one episode. Yeah. 
why I like this, just like the writers, just like the directors, is it's true to the original nature of the comics where Mm -hmm. they were bringing in different artists for every single story. And I watched a documentary on the comics and they were saying they didn't tell them to try and all keep the same style of of illustration. Mm -hmm. They encouraged them to bring their own voice to the illustrations Ah. so that it would all be unified in some way, but it would also be slightly different. And that's what they encouraged in the TV series, too. Yeah, I love that where there is control and there is a form, like a standard format that everybody works in. But there is so much variation and you can get a flavor of that as you watch the series. Yeah, it just keeps it fun, too. Episode to episode, it's not like the same exact thing every time. You don't quite know what you're going to get in the mood. Two important composers of note that I was very surprised by. You scroll, like if you go to IMDb and just see who was involved, which is insane. Uh It's a lot of people like, oh, I think I kind of have heard that that person or not. Mm Mm-hmm. Towards the very bottom of the list, I came across two names that I was really surprised by. Who? One was Craig Saffin, who I love. He did Nightmare 4. He did Fade to Black. Like, he's just an awesome composer. I actually am planning on doing his story on a Patreon episode of The Chill Factor. Cool. But the other one was Warren Zevon did a <laughs> posed an episode. I was like, dude, everybody was getting a piece of the action. That's Weird. Crazy. Weird. I was Warren Zevon later. I didn't look at see which one he was which one he did. He just did a single episode. Okay. That's interesting. Like we said, the you know, there are so many different voices, you know, contributing to each episode and the series as a whole. There has to be that one like thread of continuity and of course that's the crypt keeper the crypt keeper was actually designed by kevin yeager who as i just mentioned had directed a couple of episodes yeah and we've mentioned him several times on this podcast so we're not going to go over his very important career yeah i'll do a few highlights he got his start on freddy krueger in a nightmare on elm street 2 and freddy's revenge and chucky in the child's play film and he has Kevin Yeager Productions, Inc., or KYPI. They have created effects for Face Off and, most importantly, Starship Troopers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, check out our Patreon. Michael Ironside. (laughs) In the practice of saying true to the source material, Yeager wanted to have the Crypt Keeper be reminiscent of all three of the horror hosts from the comics, the original comics. So he used the same cold blue eyes that he had used for Chucky, too. So he oh, interesting. put together all of the original hosts and just made the Crypt Keeper that we're familiar with now instead of having three separate hosts. Yeah, which I think was a smart choice. Mm-hmm. Well, he was a big fan of the comics, too, wasn't he? I think everybody on yeah. this was. While the Crypt Keeper is pretty cheesy, it's intentionally so. He was a very complicated puppet, though. <laughs> yeah, uh, you could tell. And there were many people involved in his creation, his performance and his care. There were a bunch of, and I'm not going to name them all because it's just a bunch of names of people you won't know, uh, but there were a bunch of puppeteers and they were talking in a documentary we watched about how like little uh, gaskets and motors would constantly overheat and blow out and they were always repairing him. But there were a bunch of people. It's shocking to look over the list of people who were running the Crypt Keeper puppet and not see any of them in any of the shots because you go, where are all these (laughs) people? Yeah, all those wires are run real Yeah, it's crazy. But I do want to talk about uh, Van Charles Snowden. He was a puppeteer and was H.R. Puffin stuff on almost every episode of the series. Really? Yeah. He was also involved with Child's Play 2 and 3. Man, those are so good. Mm -hmm. Pee-wee's Playhouse, Mm -hmm. Beetlejuice, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, Dracula, Alien Resurrection, Starship Troopers, Mm-hmm. And the X-Files. <laughs> okay, everything comes back. If you guys haven't picked up on it, not only do we love Starship Troopers, we did a Patreon episode on it. Get over there. Yeah. <laughs> In 1989, Snowden and the other puppeteers were nominated for an Emmy Award for Outstanding Performance in a Variety or Musical Program for their work on uh, DC Follies, which was another thing that he was big in. The nomination was actually the first time the Primetime Emmy Awards had honored puppeteers in their history. Really? Yep. But the Snowden and the cast of DC Follies lost to Linda Ronstadt for a PBS special. Oh, my God. 
gosh. <laughs> no, no justice in this world. Maybe there is. I don't know. Get it, Linda. Uh, Snowden also worked for the puppeteer division of Hasbro and Tiger Electronics division. He was part of the puppetry and programming team. Then he developed toys like Furby. Remember Furby? Oh, yeah. He did the, like, electronics, like, the way the eyeballs moved and stuff. He did a Gizmo, Yoda, E.T. And he did that for the last three years of his life before he died in 2010. Obviously, we have to talk about the voice of the Crypt Keeper. Oh, yeah. Because this makes or breaks pretty much the whole series, I think. This makes the series, period, because I don't think the series would have taken off without him. Yeah, so... To make the voice of a corpse, you have to, I mean, put some thought into what a corpse would sound like. Yeah, they asked Tom Waits. He was busy. (laughs) 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 No, instead they found John Edward Kassir. He's Mm -hmm. a voice actor and a comedian. Yeah. Where do you rate comedians? Are they above or below actors in in your canon? Oh, in my canon? Yeah. I think it, as far as talent or personality? Personality. <laughs> like if you had to rent a, a flat with a comedian or an actor, which would you choose? They're the same exact thing. It's like basically two different variations of an apple. It's not apples and oranges. <laughs> it's just apples and different apples? Okay. Yeah. Well, he's a comedian and a voice actor, so I think that it's like double apple. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I don't know. But he has done a, a tremendous amount of voice work from video games galore. You can go look over his his information. It's bonkers. He's done so many things, a quabillion cartoons. And he got this job. And this is probably what he's most well-known for. I mean, oh, It easily. is a yeah. distinctive voice. He based the voice of the Crypt Keeper partially on actress Margaret Hamilton. Do you know who she is? I don't think I do, no. Who is <laughs> so she? It's actually, you'll go, oh, yeah, the Wicked Witch of the West. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. And Henry Youngman and then also Alfred Hitchcock. So he kind of put those all into a weird spooky soup and proceeded. Okay, I could see that. Yeah. And he talked about, in an interview we watched with him, he talked about having to consider like the way that the vocal cords would be partially rotted away and what that might sound like and it's really cool to listen to him talk because he goes from his normal human voice Mm -hmm. into what he thinks it would sound like and it's it's perfect it's campy it's fun it's kind of creepy spooky scary it's great you know the more we talk about voice actors episode after episode i'm like why didn't we get into that business i know they have like 800 credits each steady work Man. But it takes a lot of skill because, you know, when I when I do our little um, rapid fire mm-hmm. episode, I use a news broadcaster voice. <laughs> and every single time I forget what the voice sounds like. And I'm like, hmm, I think it was like this. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. But to retain his voice, he would actually drink honey and lemon juice after recording his lines. Okay. Because he was trying to, like, keep it cool. Because that level of intensity, I feel like my voice would die. Yeah, it would be it would be pretty demanding. Yeah, so he really created the, uh, I don't know, the big center focus of this entire series. Because there was no other star. Each episode had stars, like famous people. But he is the only recurring character that we see episode after episode. Yeah, I don't know if you came across this when you were reading up on him. I think it was a podcast I listened to last year with him. Mm -hmm. They were interviewing him and he was saying, I'm pretty sure this is how it was, I didn't double check, that he was saying that he he got pretty much creative control to do the puns, that he just got to start writing it and took it and ran with it and like loved it. Because he was a comedian, he had mm-hmm. a kind of natural ability to just feel that out. So I think a lot of that, if not all of it, is credited to him just coming up with these nonsense puns, which get more and more ridiculous, and they're so funny. Yes. Oh, my gosh. They're so dumb. And I've heard a lot of comedians call puns low-level humor. Um, <laughs> as, a, as a punny person myself, I find that very rude. Yeah. But it's he takes it to a whole new level it's out of control you know i wasn't going to but let's just give a sample of like when it's just off the rails (laughs) you 
Sea Boils and Ghouls at Crypt Keeper Financial, we can help you get Morgue for your money. Whether it's mutual fiends you want or cold, horrid cash, we can guarantee you'll coroner the market. <laughs> okay, sometimes it can rain it in, I suppose. But whatever, good for him. He's having a blast. Let's walk through, or not really walk through, but kind of talk about an episode. Let's look at the... I mean, it is the Christmas season. Yeah. Let's, for those of you who are like, just give us some Christmas stuff already. Yeah, everybody wants it. Actually, not only is the Christmas episode a really fun one, but it also is the template of showing how a typical episode for Tales from the Crypt worked and who was involved and how incredibly diverse it was. Because as we walk through just this one episode, imagine that for every single short episode. It's yeah. it's pretty incredible. The one we're going to be looking at is called And All Through the House. Mm-hmm. This is a personal favorite of a lot of people I know, uh, especially shout out to our friend Tommy. He loves this one. and was part of the reason why I thought, hey, what about covering that? Because he talks about it a lot. Oh. <laughs> but this was a really cool one. And this, is, this was technically the second of the three parts in each episode. So each episode of Tales from the Crypt, we may or may not have already mentioned, had three mini stories, just like the comic books. They were like tiny stories that were strung together by the Crypt Keeper. Mm -hmm. The first one of the first pilot episode that aired on June 10th, 1989, was directed by Walter Hill. That's a really cool one, too, about this guy who's an electrocutioner and loses his job. But then the second one right after that is this Christmas episode. Mm -hmm. And although it's really awesome, it was not the first time that it had been adapted from the comics. It comes from the original comic was not Tales from the Crypt, but one of the other horror-related ones that they were doing called Vault of Horror. It was number 35, and it came out in 1954. Oh. And it was first adapted in the 1972 film Tales from the Crypt. Okay. Which is funny because I owned that movie for a long time, and I mainly only held on to it because of that one story. Huh. I really liked that Christmas story. I ultimately was like, I don't think I'm going to watch it enough to hold on to it. So (laughs) I sold. I had a really cool prism clam of it, but I got rid of it. But no, so then it shows up again in this episode. And all through the house. And actually, William Gaines was very involved with this episode. Which I think was important because bringing him in early on to Mm -hmm. say, not only to get his blessing, but to get his ideas of like, how can we adapt this into live action, but Mm -hmm. still maintain some sense of the comic book? They took it really seriously. What's crazy is who was involved. So not only was William Gaines now overseeing part of it, but it was directed by Robert Zemeckis. So it wasn't just some random person. Yeah. It was They were bringing in a powerhouse. And one of the random directors is like, I'm not some random person. I know, totally. <laughs> Good <Great> job, buddy. <laughs> the screenplay was adapted by Fred Decker, who did The Monster Squad and Night of the Creeps. Wow. And this is just awesome. It was composed by Alan Stravini, who we've already mentioned, but he is a m- massive composer who did... Predator, Forrest Gump. I mean, he was a Zemeckis guy, too. So he's done every one of those films. Even the cinematographer was Dean Cundley. He's another, like, huge star. He did Halloween, The Fog, Escape from New York, The Thing, Back to the Future. Like, this is the level of talent for just one 20-minute episode was off the charts. It's just really fun to think about. This was the tone they're setting from every episode going forward. Yeah. It's like, we're bringing in everybody and it's going to be top notch. Yeah, and they do that through the whole series. Although the last, I think, season or maybe couple seasons happen in England and they have British actors. Oh, that's really interesting. But let's talk about this and all through the house. This is a fun one. It's goofy. It's campy. It's very simple. Very much like the comics. It starts out with a husband and wife sitting around a fire. Uh, the husband is facing away. The wife is kind of pacing behind him. And she has the fire poker. Uh-huh. Uh, this is played by an actress named Mary Ellen Trainer. You would recognize her. She's not a very uh, common name that we hear now, but you'd you'd recognize her if you saw her. And she was more famous at that point in time. She comes up behind her husband and kills him, mm-hmm. like just 
straight away sticks that poker and it's gruesome right away oh, too. It's pretty bad because yeah. you as you watch it you're like she's not gonna hit him something else is gonna happen and then she just does it yeah keep in mind that for those of you who grew up on the tv series and reruns there's a there's different versions of these and the original on hbo were pretty gruesome yeah, very, very gory graphic. yeah and so she takes the poker out of her husband's head and he's still sitting up there. And then her daughter comes down yeah. looking for Santa <laughs> Claus. Funny. The daughter doesn't see what's happened. And the mother quickly pushes her up to bed and yeah. cracks the window because it's hot in the house. Right. That's important. So then she goes back down to deal with her husband's body. And quite frankly, she is a really bad murderess. She gave <laughs> no thought into what she was doing here. At all. She just acted very impulsively. It seemed like it, though. It seemed like they, her, we find out that it was a, a whole ploy with her boyfriend. Yeah, she leaves a voice message. Yeah, for to him. get insurance money by killing the husband. But it seems like she just, the opportunity arose and she took it. I do like, though, when she puts the bag over his head and puts a little bow around it. That's yeah. pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, dark humor for sure. Yeah. At this time, she starts pulling his dead body out the front door. The plan is she's going to hoist him into an open well that's in front of their house. It's a big snowstorm. But on the news, as she's distracted with this corpse, <laughs> there's a little news broadcast that everybody needs to, like, batten down the hatches because a lunatic from the asylum dressed as Santa Claus has escaped and is on a killing spree. What a great premise for a holiday episode. Happy holidays, everybody. <laughs> so she's dragging the body to the well, unaware that there's a Santa Claus lunatic on like nearby. And he the husband starts to wake up. Oh, this is cool. She re-kills him. Uh-huh. Second time's a charm, maybe? Yeah. And then she's attacked by Santa Claus lunatic. Yeah, who is so funny looking. He's like, goofy. He's got these like <laughs> he's bubba <ridiculous>. teeth. <laughs> Looks like he's been punched in the face quite a few times. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. And she escapes and, you know, there's a scuffle throughout the house. She goes to call the police and then realizes she's got a corpse in front of her house that she can't explain. Mm -hmm. And she's not sure she should call the police to her house. But then, you know, she has to urgently and you know fast thinking on her part she realizes she can blame the murder on the lunatic and right. get away with it which is the best plan she's had so far yeah and then it turns into basically like a home invasion yeah where he's just trying to get to her yeah and then he finds his way upstairs to her daughter who has cracked a window and is you know, happy to see Santa Claus on Christmas Eve. yeah she's helping him in oh my gosh what oh, a creepy Santa so creepy comes around the corner the daughter is holding Santa's hand, and he's got the axe in his hand. And he delivers this totally awesome line. Naughty or nice. And we get to the end, which is very much like a comic book, mm -hmm. where she's standing on the stairs, looking at her daughter and this Santa, murder Santa, holding the axe. Yep. And she just starts screaming. Yes. And actually, Gaines is the reason for this. So uh, he was super involved with this whole process, but he specifically requested that she continuously scream and scream for an incredibly long time. <laughs> and they obliged and felt like it helped make the series you know, kick off to a great start because it is a really, really, really long scream. And it's great, though. Yeah, it is. And it's comic. Yeah. And then we flash back to the Crypt Keeper who mm -hmm. reassures the audience that the daughter is safe because yeah. he really only wants to kill adult women, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's so great. It's very short. You know, it's what, 20 something minutes. Yeah. It's so fun. And I do think it is a holiday must. Every Christmas, you might as well throw on the episode and watch it. Oh, yeah. I don't think this is streaming through that HBO channel because it's a huge legal headache. It's, this is a, a reoccurring theme is there's a lot of legal troubles with this. So that's why it's not streaming. But you can find it in various other ways. We actually rewatch this because we... I don't know if we used to have the box set and sold it. I don't know. I thought we still had it. And when I went to look for it, we didn't. So mm. we found this episode on YouTube and we're able to okay. watch it. So it's still cool. And I always, you know, think we should watch this during Christmas time. Right. It's really fun, but it's also a nice look at just a single episode. And take that and multiply it by 93 episodes. And that's what you get. You know, it's really cool. Considering it runs from 
every kind of story, a lot of just like the comics got ghosts and ghouls and zombies and murderers. It's got a lot of, you know, wives plotting against their husbands and husbands plotting against their wives yeah. and all this. But it stays totally true to the comics with they always get what they deserve in the end. Yeah. And I always love that. I think that's the signature of Tales from the Crypt. And they do it really well. I think a lot of anthologies try and do that. And they don't maybe succeed as well as they do. Yeah. So don't try and, you know, reinvent the wheel. Just take that old gem and polish it up. And I think they did it very effectively. It ran for seven seasons. So it was very successful. Mm -hmm. Like we mentioned earlier, started in 89, ran all the way to 96. And during the run, it had a lot of success, too, that branched out. You know, in 1991, a soundtrack was released, which I don't have. I would really love to have with a lot of the the themes from other composers Mm -hmm. throughout that first couple seasons. 93, we get, which we all remember, people our age, Tales from the Crypt Keeper, the Saturday morning cartoon that (laughs) ran for two seasons, 26 episodes. And then in 94, that's when Fox started doing the reruns. So this is when it broadened a huge market because now it wasn't just HBO subscribers. It was everybody was getting to watch Tales from the Crypt. I remember when it went into syndication too, being able to watch it at like five in the afternoon. It was was such a weird thing. Always on, yeah. (laughs) I watched it all the time. And then also in 94 is when we get the holiday-themed album, Have Yourself a Scary Little Christmas, <laughs> which, I rec- which I recommend everybody own. <laughs> I am not... I mean, I do love holiday stuff, but one thing I particularly love are holiday-themed albums that we have on record. Oh, yeah. You know, we've got the New Kids on the Block yep. one. We've got the Star Wars Christmas. I just, I love those. I think they're fun. And this is one that I think people should have. We should get it and play it. The other thing that started while this was still in syndication and still actually putting out episodes was in 95, they decided, hey, this is such a huge hit. Let's do a spinoff trilogy of movies that are standalone movies presented by Tales from the Crypt. And it started with 1995's Demon Knight, which I love. Was this based on a, a comic or was it a total spinoff? Do you know? I don't know. I don't think it was based on a comic at all. Okay. I mean, maybe like the very loosely, but it couldn't be because these are entire Yeah, because the comics were little snippets, not full movies. Yeah, but 95's Demon Knight is a fun one. We own that one. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. I mean, that's just a, it's always fun to rewatch. The one that immediately followed for the second in the trilogy was Bordello of Blood. Definitely not a fan of that one as much. And neither was anybody else. It was a flop. So what had (laughs) happened was Demon Knight was a huge success. They were like, yeah. Then Bordello of Blood came out. It was a flop. And they're like, wait, maybe we should rethink this. (laughs) And the third did not get released. Oh. People say, though, that in 2002, the film Ritual came out. And that was the unofficial part three of Tales from the Crypt movies actually had Tim Curry in it. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if we've ever seen it now that I don't I'm thinking think so. about it. So maybe we should watch that. It's also during this time that I should probably bring up this week's fun fact. Oh! I was surprised by this. I don't know if people knew this or not. When they were doing this trilogy idea, uh-huh. they were looking at all kinds of scripts that were being shot, shopped around and films that were being made to say, well, maybe it can just be a Tales from the Crypt Presents yeah. and seeing stories that were in line with it. Two of the stories that were considered to become Tales from the Crypt movies were the first one, Quentin Tarantino's From Dust Till Dawn, oh. which would have made perfect sense. Yeah. That would have been a great one, actually. And the other was... The Frighteners by Peter Jackson. Yeah. So I thought that was really cool. Interesting. <laughs> that it could have just been like a sub-series of Tales from the Crypt Weird. present. Yeah. Tales from the Crypt ends in 96. And then 96 to 97, there was also a very short-lived kids show on CBS called Secrets of the Crypt Keeper's Haunted House. Oh. I never watched that, no. did you? uh-uh. I kind of want to watch it now. Yeah. <laughs> Weird. And then it kind of just died out after that you know merchandise reruns it was it had seen its its time in the light 2000 there was a cool radio show that was doing kind of radio broadcast Mm -hmm. versions of it there was a couple other odds and ends like another soundtrack came out of like metal bands doing covers of stuff i mean just 
trying to keep it alive, but it really never went anywhere after that. It There were pitches to get it rebooted, but yeah. it just could not take off at all. Nobody was willing to do. And interestingly, this is a, a recurring theme. All the reboots that got pitched were without the Crypt Keeper. They wanted to remove the Crypt Keeper. That's which so weird. Which made no sense whatsoever, because then it's just an anthology. Yeah, we like that cheesy campy guy. The only time that it almost got made was 2016. Ten episodes got approved and greenlit to go into production. And guess who was going to oversee them? Who? Do you know this one? I think I might. <laughs> I would have been so disappointed. M. Night yeah, Shyamalan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. I saw his name linked and I was like, I don't even care. No, thanks. But he was signed on to do the reboot. Ten episodes. But then what happened was this whole legal rights and ownership deal and it got pulled they couldn't pull it off so but his also wasn't going to have the the crypt keeper well what's even the point that's what i thought it's just so stupid but anyway that's kind of tales from the crypt that's how it got its start how it went into the tv you know powerhouse that it was Mm -hmm. and also a fun little look at one of our favorite episodes yeah the the christmas episode for tis the season to discuss it (laughs) okay well For those of you that stuck around, we did mention at the top that we had a big announcement. We have a couple announcements, actually. 42. (laughs) Take out your notebook. Starting now. (laughs) Announcement number one is we have busted it nonstop, especially with the Patreon. We are taking a little bit of a break for one week only. This is our first break ever. 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 In over 100 plus episodes that we've missed a week. But we are voluntarily taking a little bit of a holiday vacation Next week, we will not be putting out an episode, so we will be seeing you in the new year. And when you say vacation, you mean just staying home and doing nothing. Oh, yeah. We're not okay. doing anything different other than just not putting out an episode that week. <laughs> we'll probably even watch a movie from the 80s. <laughs> right. Totally. You do, though, in a couple of days from now, have the, the bonus episode coming out on Patreon. So if yep. you want a little bit more but. We will see you in the new year mm-hmm. with a fresh slate of shows. And that brings us to our even larger announcement is after 100 plus episodes and two years straight of doing these, we became a little too heavy on the movie episodes. And although they're fun, as you can tell, we like talking about movies, but we like talking about them in a much broader context. We're more fans of the history of things of the 80s and biographies and stuff like that, strange events that happen. So in order to do that, we need more time to prep. Doing these week to week are very demanding. Research wise, because we both work. Yes, we also have full time jobs. So we came to a decision after two years that we are going to change up and go to bi-monthly instead of every week. Yes. Because rather than just talking about movies and and joking about them, we're going to be actually doing more of what we've done in the past with our like last week, Gem and the Holograms, our Pee Wee Herman episode, Max Hedrum, Alf, Weird Al Yankovic, all these things where we get to just do, have way more fun and do Mm -hmm. more original research. We'll still do fun movies from time to time, but I think that we are looking to bring more to the table than just being goofballs who watch movies. Yeah, there are a billion other podcasts that do movies and they do them really well. So don't stop listening to that, but we just have other things we're really excited about doing. So we'll be going to buy monthly. It'll probably be the first and third week of every month. If you want more than those two episodes that we're offering you for free, like we mentioned, you can join our Patreon where we're not slowing down. We're still doing three bonus episodes every month on there. Yes. And we you do. get lots of goofy stuff there. We, we're having fun. So if you are interested in that, go check out our Patreon. Otherwise, you can continue to follow us. Please rate, review, subscribe, spread the word. That does a lot for all of all that we're doing. We're on Instagram at Laser Graves, or you can catch all our back episodes. I didn't know this, but I think iTunes caps out at 100. Oh. So anything that we've done before then is now archived, and you can't get it on iTunes oh. anymore. But luckily, we have a website, so you can go to lasergraves.com and catch our really, really early episodes if you need to uh, at <laughs> lasergraves.com. <laughs> that's our big announcement i hope that you guys understand and look forward to us really digging in even deeper and taking laser graves to a new uncharted territories going into 2021 and guys we're almost through this year 2021 will be better yeah it has to be 
So if you want to follow our personal sites on Instagram, I'm at death at 33 RPM. I'm at Mariah Rose Wimmer. And it's the holidays. You got some extra time. Hopefully catch up on our back episodes, catch up on all our friends episodes. We'll be sharing their links on our Instagram. I hope whatever you celebrate, however you celebrate, you have fun, you stay warm and safe, and we will see you in the new year for brand new laser graves, a brand new year. Have fun. Happy holidays. Happy Boxing Day, Canada. We wish you'd bury the missus. We wish you'd bury the missus. We wish you'd bury the missus. She's been dead since last year. She's getting quite gamey with mold on her skin. You killed her last Christmas. That's how long it has been. It's time you buried the missus.